the ACR Bullet Podcast, the show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today I'm joined by two leading figures of ACR to discuss the ongoing debate over evaluation and management, or ENM, CPT coding changes. Howard Fleischheim, MD, MMM, FACR, is chair of the ACR Board of Chancellors and serves as associate professor in the Emory University Department of Radiology and Imaging, Service, Imaging Sciences. Gregory Nicola, MD, is chair of the ACR Commission on Economics and is past chair of the ACR Macro Committee. In addition, he serves as executive leader of Hackensack Radiology Group in New Jersey. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure speaking with you today. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Um, just, so, just to set the stage, because this is a bit of a complicated um, subject we're tackling today, um, I'll go ahead and give a brief summary of where we are with respect to the ENM CPT coding changes, and then I'll ask you both some questions. Um, as a result of as as a result of ad advocacy by the ACR-led Medical Coalition, uh, which was uh, put together in response to some of this, uh, the uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, or Omnibus and Coronavirus Relief Bill, uh, was passed by Congress late last year. This bill includes a significant reduction in anticipated Medicare provider payment cuts due to evaluation and management, or as I said earlier, ENM CPT coding changes. Uh, as well as a phased in implementation of these ENM adjustments. Um, so Dr. Nicola, this first question is for you. Um, for those viewers who may not be as familiar with either ENM codes or the proposed coding changes, um, can you please say a little bit about, or maybe give us a baseline understanding of what the codes are, um, how such a reallocation of payments, uh, at least in the beginning of all this, uh, threatened to penalize physicians who do not frequently bill for ENM services, uh, and also maybe um, what changes were mandated by the 2021 uh, Medicare Physician and Fee, uh, sorry, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule (MPFS) rule. Uh, thanks, Chris. I'll be happy to uh, expand on those questions. Um, first off, what happened has been, you know, brewing for several years. It was clear from the broader medical community that outpatient face-to-face -face visits that many specialists and primary care doctors are make their bread and butter living on um, were undervalued. Um, with the advent of EHR and the intense data requirements that medicine has become, um, those office visits were taking longer and were more complex than they were originally valued at um, over a decade ago. So those subsequently went through the reevaluation process. I'm not gonna go into all the nuanced acronyms, on how those are revalued, but they ended up with values, meaning RVU values, relative value unit values um, that were significantly higher than they were um, prior, up to 20 to 25% higher, which meant that a significant amount of more money would be used to reimburse those specific um, visits. Um, and as you know, the Medicare payment system, at least for physicians is budget neutral meaning there's a fixed pot of money to pay clinicians. So if you're gonna pay one sector of that um, payment system higher, um, all other payment, um, payments have to go down. It turns out that the ENM outpatient visits make up 30% of all medical encounters. And so that meant a large amount of money had to be shifted in order to reimburse them at the newer, higher RVU rate. And it, what, what it meant for us as radiologists is that the conversion factor, which is the dollar amount we're paid per RVU, um, in 2019 was $36.09. Um, it was slated to be, I'm sorry, in 2020, it was $36.09. 2019, 
It was slated to be after the implementation of these ENM cuts and prior to the Consolidation Omnibus Act, it was going to drop down to $32.46. Um, in conjunction with a number of other hits to the fee schedule, it was going to lead in total to an 11% fee schedule cut for radiology. That's quite a massive cut. Um, and then the Consolidation Appropriations Act came in. And um, I, I don't know if you want Howard to go into what what ha that happened there, or I can I can dive in deeper. Otherwise, I'll be probably talking too long. Um, but it ended up increasing their conversion factor from thirty-two dollars and twenty-six cents to thirty-four dollars and eighty-nine cents. And and maybe you guys can take it from here, or I can answer further if you'd like. Well, actually, that's that's a really good entree into, into my second question, which was for Dr. Fleischon. You, uh, Dr. Nicole, you mentioned the uh, the the overall reduced payments of upwards of 11%. And that's really, uh, you know, because of a lot of things, but one of which is that budget neutrality requirement in the MPFS rule. Um, so Dr. Fleischon, ACR, uh, part of the story is then that ACR sought to have Congress waive this requirement. How effective was the ACR government relations team in lobbying for reduction for these payment cuts? So Chris, to be brief, our GR staff did an incredible job breaking through all the noise in Washington and Capitol Hill in order to get our voices heard. What was critical was the organization of more than 85 professional societies in our coalition that amplified our voice. Before December 2020, our friends in Congress referred us to negotiate with Medicare or CMS. After their final rule came out and it was clear that CMS was punting on the budget neutrality implications, we were left to scramble to lobby for legislative relief. Our team went into overdrive and pulled all our resources to get relief from the CMS policy impact. So two things went into effect with the legislation. Number one was a $3 billion uh, one-year supplement uh, to boost the conversion factor. And the second was a, uh, a relief, a three-year relief from some new codes that were gonna be implemented. That's what contributed to the, uh, to the uh, reduction from the 11% to the 4% hit that we realized. So in brief, our GR staff was more than effective. They were remarkable. Excellent. And I guess you can't extract uh, what happened last year from COVID. So I was, I was curious, like, uh, you know, how did COVID, if at all, how did that play into ACR's argument against the budget neutrality requirement? Well, certainly uh, COVID affected everything. Our plea to Congress was that during the end of the year when lobbying for the appropriations bill was that now was not the time to obstruct physician resources to provide for uh, our patients. Now more than ever, especially with COVID, we needed to maximize care and access, especially where patients need us the most. The pandemic had hamstrung all the providers in delivering the care that needed to be addressed. The uncertainty with the, we were all facing, uh, radiologists continue to play a critical role in delivering medical imaging care. Uh, Dr. Nicola, this next question is for you. Um, CMS intends for the ENM changes to reduce ENM coding changes uh, to reduce administrative burden, improve payment rates, uh, and better reflect 
current clinical practice. Um, do you think it will accomplish this given the reduction in cuts to physician reimbursement, even though they're a little bit shallower of cuts? So uh, clear, um, when they charge government relations team did an amazing job, as Howard said, and there's nothing to take away from that. They, they got more money put in the fee schedule. The, the implementation of these E&M codes did happen. So that's done. It's something that's happened. What those codes did besides increase reimbursement for those specific outpatient visits is it simplified documentation requirements for those clinicians quite a bit. So it absolutely was successful in simplifying documentation requirements that were really unnecessary. Um, so yes, it accomplished that. Um, did it actually increase reimbursement to primary care clinicians? Even without, so Congress stepped in and gave 3.75% increase to the physician fee schedule. That turned out to be about $3 billion. Um, that $3 billion was evenly distributed across the fee schedule. So primary care doctors did even better than they were going to do um, before the conversion factor was fixed by, by Medicare. But even if Medicare or other Congress, by Congress, even if Congress didn't fix the conversion factor, the increase in RVUs for these services was so high that the primary care doctors were still going to get a raise compared to their baseline year. So um, it, it actually made everyone a little healthier in the reimbursement strategy as opposed to um, the primary care doctors were never going to lose in this. Um, so that's, that's really how it laid out. Now, there was an add-on code that is really kind of beyond the scope of this discussion that also added significant reimbursement to the primary care doctors. The add-on code is still in play. It's been delayed for three years. Um, we actually had a phone call um, about two weeks ago with Medicare expressing our concerns with that add-on code. Um, as of now, there's been a legislative pause but it's still slated to be implemented and cause another fee schedule hit to um, anybody who can't build out in code, meaning radiologists. Um, so we're still um, playing many different avenues to stop that. Um, and that certainly reduces primary care doctors overall increase in payment, but they still got an increase in payment. So everything that was, was attempted to be um, solved here, uh, reducing documentation requirements, making things easier for our outpatient um, visits um, for patients and increasing reimbursement happened. That's great that we got kind of everything then. Um, uh, Dr. Fleischon, uh, this, there is some concern um, that reduced reimbursements uh, could diminish access to radiologic care for patients in underserved areas. I think this may have been more of a concern at the outset than maybe now, uh, or you can correct me on that. Uh, but I'm thinking particularly about rural areas or areas that have a large percentage of Medicare patients and are only marginally profitable. Um, do you think this is a potential issue, uh, you know, even in the landscape we're looking at right now? So Chris, reduce reimbursement and reduce access to care has always been and remains a major concern. Uh, delivering modern medical imaging requires considerable capitalization, and it also is dependent on sufficient manpower. To deliver equitable care, we need to come together and ensure that resources are allocated appropriately and incentives are properly aligned. One of the biggest variables and outcomes is actually location. By making sure all of our patients have adequate and appropriate access for their personal needs, we can go a long way to address inequities in medical imaging. 
Very Chris, if you don't mind, I'd like to add something yes. here that we've Absolutely. working on as part of the Economics Commission and had discussions with Medicare over. I, I think that um, we also have to think outside the box about location. Also, uh, locations just being the only access to care issue. There's actually a temporal access to care issue in the primary care world that could trickle into the radiology world. And what I mean by that is radiology is a 24-7 specialty. And if you don't have the best and brightest working at one in the morning or at four in the morning or on Saturday and Sunday, that is a potential access to care issue on the temporal scale. Um, and we've asked Medicare to look at paying differentials in pay based on hours. And so when you reduce payment to radiologists, a practice like mine, a private group, it becomes harder for us to reimburse ourselves, which we do work at night, but find people to help us fill in the gaps of working these off-hour shifts. So you create a temporal access to care issue um, that's problematic too. And I can tell you, as, as my role in my hospital network, uh, as a finance chair for the whole clinically integrated network, we already see an access to care issue in primary care off-hours. Um, and, and until we start paying for off-hour primary care, we're going to still continue to have that access to care issue off hours. We also see it in other specialties. It's very hard to get an outpatient orthopedic consult at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, to be honest with you. Um, radiology doesn't necessarily have that conundrum right now, but we could create it by reducing reimbursement. It's gonna be harder and harder for us to find people willing to work 24 seven shifts um, because of those, those redu reductions in reimbursement. And actually, uh, Greg, that's a great point. I mean, going back to the future, we actually used to have a code that we used to bill under for uh, off-hour care, mm -hmm. and that code went away. Yep. So reintroducing that idea should not be new to CMS, mm -hmm. but that's a very good point that you raised. It's very interesting. Well, um, Dr. Nicole, I have a, a specific uh, ACR Commission on Economics question for you, given that you're the chair. Um, so I know that you all formed a work group to look at ways radiology practices can mitigate or weather these cuts. Uh, and I'm wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the, what the commission has found or, or if maybe you're still in the midst of that work. Yeah, no, we, we concluded that work group. And the, the main point of that work group was, is there ability for diagnostic radiologists to bill more E&M services? Because it's really not something diagnostic radiologists currently do. And um, we brought together a number of experts in the college from people who understand how to build the CPT code to people who understand how to value CPT codes, um, a, a number of people. And what we concluded is that there's a very limited avenue for radiologists to actually participate in outpatient visits and pay, get them paid for. Um, mainly the limitations have to do with how our current CPT codes for our bread and butter work are valued. We have significant pre and post service times inside a code, for example, reading a head CT or interpreting a CT abdomen pelvis. There's significant already computated time for communicating results to patients and or physicians. So the concept of just meeting with a patient and communicating results is not enough to meet the criteria for a separable billable event. There's also E&M specific criteria you have to meet in order to actually bill out NEM service. And it turned out that that even limited the scope further for diagnostic radiologists to participate in those type of services. What we did found is there's a potential avenue, certainly for those performing procedures, 
but also for those who are actually meeting with patients and performing management decisions in which you are able to actually order advanced imaging. Now, it turns out that that's not even doable as well. Even if you were to help make management decisions and help determine what the next study was and you met with the patient and talked to the patient about that, it turns out that there is um, deep inside the regulations of Medicare, there's something called treating physician rules that prohibit diagnostic radiologists for participating in ordering advanced imaging studies when they specifically own their own equipment. So there's a lot of nuances in it. There are tiny windows for us to bill E&M services and perform diagnostic testing, but they're extremely nuanced and limited. Um, and, uh, and we unfortunately didn't come up with a whole lot of, uh, of ways to do that. We do think that there's avenues in the future for radiologists to participate in E&M billing and management of incidental findings. However, there's still a lot of work to be done to see where those avenues lie and what Medicare will pay for. But we think there's a lot of hope for radiologists to participate in that world. I was struck by something I read that you had, that you were quoted as saying, Dr. Nicola, about um, you know basically uh, this was a shot across radiology's bow, and not just radiology, but other other specialties as well. But radiology's bow, um, you know, these type of payment redistributions are coming, um, and what you just alluded to and what you said, um, how. Um, how can radiologists operationalize, I guess, what, what it is you were just describing about, uh, you know, the work that the, that the, the, the uh, committee found, I'm sorry, commission found? How, in well, practical terms, how can people start repositioning themselves? Well, one is I think it's, it's baby steps. I think drastic changes can be hard to manage. Um, but baby steps, one is, um, are you, do you have the data analytic capabilities for finding out which patients you recommended studies on and to confirm that they've had follow-up. That's the first step. The next step is working with your clinical colleagues to make sure those patients are then seen by either a clinical colleague or if the clinical colleagues don't wanna manage all these insult findings, could your group help manage them? Meaning creating a database or possibly even creating a clinic where those patients could be seen and then have the appropriate management done. Now that clinic could be under a radiology group. It could be a physician assistant or a primary care doctor under the radiology group helping you manage it. So there are ways for, or if a radiologist is really comfortable, now for example, and, and I know some groups who have dual trained radiologists are also internal medicine boarded, um, they could conceivably see these incidental finding patients and um, in an office visit, bill an E&M out, order an advanced study to make sure that the patient's properly followed. That's really closing the loophole where you're going the full gamut. Um, there's certainly competitive considerations here. You don't want to take um, some, for example, if you have a referrer who sends a lot of business to you and you're taking their incidental findings and seeing them in a clinic, that might not make them happy or it could make them happy. Maybe they don't want to manage them. There's certainly political considerations you have to work out in your own business environment. But I definitely think there's a business model here for radiologists to play a much bigger role, whether it's just the data capabilities or the full-on closing the loophole and seeing the patient and ordering the advanced imaging study. There's a whole gamut of um, ways we can all participate. All right, well, um, given all that, Dr. Nicola, um, where do you see things progressing on this subject from here? And I guess how, you've already alluded to a little bit, but um, in the longer term, how will radiology have to adapt, uh, you know, in terms of shaping reimbursement strategies instead of being shaped by them? Well, the, the one thing is we start, we have to start accepting a major error by payers. And that error is that they have equated 
accountability of care towards patients with attribution of patients. Um, as we all know, as radiologists, we are 100% accountability accountable for the care we provide our patients. We can help manage insult findings. We can cut down on unnecessary studies. We can control radiation dose. We can participate in screening programs. That's accountable care. But we don't get patients attributed to us, meaning we don't get shared savings, which is significant amounts of money. As somebody who manages that money flowing through, flowing through a large hospital network, I will tell you that there are many doctors who hit, get fee-for-service payment cuts that aren't radiologists across this country, but they can make up for some of those losses through shared savings arrangements that they've created on their network level. They might not be Medicare shared savings programs, but they may be commercial payer shared savings programs. Radiologists have to awaken to this reality and petition their networks to heavily participate in shared savings arrangements with commercial payers. You have to also understand that your network isn't necessarily handcuffed by the attribution rules. They can say that you're doing, you can say as a radiology group, I'm doing the following things to make sure I'm accountable. You can look at how you're controlling costs, how you're controlling unnecessary examinations, and make sure you feed that data back up the chain and argue why you deserve a portion of that shared savings money your network's generating. I can tell you that is an excellent way for you to stay relevant locally. It's an excellent way to improve our reputation across the country. It's an excellent way to start participating in new reimbursement models. And for me, this is imperative that we all start understanding this, this deficiency in Medicare language and capitalize on it with commercial payers and with your own local networks and not let them make the same mistake that Medicare has. Um, I've made these, um, um, these problems aware to Medicare. I've made them aware that Medicare, you, you really can't um, account, you can't make accountability and attribution the same. They understand it's a problem. They're bound by statute. But again, the commercial payers aren't and, and radiologists should start to go out to their networks and, and think about how to provide that accountable care. Well, Dr. Fleischon, speaking of the future, uh, which, which Dr. Nicola just very nicely um, uh, you know, uh, characterized for us, uh, how will the ACR government relations team navigate the terrain of negotiating lower payment cuts over the next several years, uh, sorry, several months to years, I suppose? Yes, Chris. Well, our immediate challenge continues as Greg alluded to. While the 2020 legislation provided some short-term relief to the E&M reimbursement cuts, we need to find longer-term solutions. In the beginning of 2021, Capitol Hill was probably suffering from some E&M fatigue. We're fairly certain there will be several legislative opportunities in the coming months to attach legislative language to help support these short-term measures. And we'll keep everyone up to date as more information becomes available. And we may have several more, call, uh, several more calls to action where everyone, including our coalition, can, can make a, a big difference in Washington. That sounds very optimistic. That's good. Um, well, I guess, Dr. Fleischmann, also, uh, you know, how can ACR members get involved, uh, you know, beyond, uh, you know, receiving these messages? How can they actively get involved to influence this process? Well, as for E&M, uh, be aware of the need for further action. Participate in the calls to action when you get one through your email. Encourage others in your practice and chapters to respond to the calls to action. Nothing is as impactful to legislators as when constituents 
reach out to them. As for the other issues, more and more are being vetted or developed at the local level. State chapters can help by being diligent and very active in their state legislators. Contact ACR Government Relations to see how we can help. We're actively considering what we can do on a national level to help support and engage the chapters. This is a vital effort and it'll impact all of us, all our members and all of our patients. Well, it's a very dynamic situation and I, I know there's a lot more to come on this. So uh, for anyone listening now or, or watching um, and wants to, to um, you know, follow up with you online uh, and maybe continue the conversation, um, where, can, where can they find you all? Are, are you all on social media? I know Dr. Fleischon, you're on uh, Twitter, is that correct? Well, for myself, I am on Twitter. I'm not a super user, but uh, certainly available. Everybody can uh, certainly reach out uh, by email. I'm at hvleishan uh, at acr.org. Uh, and uh, perhaps when we put out this, uh, this podcast, we can include my phone number as well. Always available, always eager to, to speak to all the members of the college. Excellent. And um, Dr. Nicola, uh, where can folks find you if they want to continue? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, also my email address is readily available through the college, G-N-N-I-C-O-L-A at yahoo.com. Um, and my Twitter handle is at Gregory N. Nicola. Um, and uh, I'm happy to answer questions. I do all the time, and it's a, it's a badge of honor to, to participate and learn from membership. So. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you both for making yourself so accessible. That's that's awesome. Well, um, for our listeners, I would like to invite you to uh, put forward any new show topics uh, by contacting us on Twitter. Uh, and then our handle is at Radiology ACR, and you can use the hashtag ACR Bulletin Podcast. Um, I also invite everyone to check out all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, and especially ACR's YouTube channel, where you'll find an archive of past episodes. I'd like to thank uh, our very special guest, Dr. Fleischon and Dr. Dr. Nicole again. Thank you so much for your time. We really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you very well, much. Thank you very much, Chris. Awesome. And thank you so much to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time.